I'm going to uh, preach someone else's sermon this morning, but uh, I think it's all right because the sermon was first delivered about uh, 34 or 3,500 years ago by uh, the prophet Moses. So I think the copyright has probably run out, and uh, it's permissible and appropriate to uh, say again what Moses said. Now, as you may know, the entire book of Deuteronomy, or almost the entire book of Deuteronomy, uh, is taken up with Moses' messages, sermons to Israel as they gathered on the east side of the Jordan River in the plains of Moab in what today is the country of of Jordan, uh, ready to go into the land to possess it. They had just completed their 40 years of wandering, and now they were going to take possession of the land that uh, had been promised to them. These, uh, These messages by Moses were designed to prepare them to go into the land. Uh, it's a restatement uh, of the law, or it contains a rest- the, the messages contain a restatement of the law, modifying it somewhat, preparing them for the, the more urban setting of, of Israel. These messages also were designed to prepare them to cope with Canaanites. There were unique temptations that they would face because of Canaanite morality and religion. So these messages are designed to teach them how to live in that uh, sort of world. Canaanites were the bad elements in the land, but there were good elements in the land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, as the old idiom puts it. And uh, this in itself was a danger. They not only had to learn how to deal with Canaanites, they had to learn to deal with the good life that they would experience in in in, uh, Canaan. Uh, If you look at verse 6 of this chapter, Moses has observed the commandments of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, uh, uh, flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. The Israelites would reap what the Canaanites had sown. Uh, They they could, could eat from the orchards that the Canaanites had planted. They would experience ease and affluence. And that in itself presented some dangers because... Affluence can corrupt you. And so Moses goes on in verse 10 uh, in his message. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord. It's the word for bless or attribute worth to the Lord. Uh, Praise the Lord your God for the good land he is giving you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart may become proud 
and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, who led you through a vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions, who brought you water out of the hard rock, who gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well for, uh, for, uh, with you. Then you may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. So remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and uh, does so in order to confirm his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Israel had experienced uh, some amazing deliverances. The Exodus is something for which there is no analogy in in history, never in in past history. As a matter of fact, it hasn't happened since. Has an enslaved uh, people been delivered in mass from another another nation? God reminds them of of the Exodus, and then he reminds them of the way he provided for them while they were while they were wandering in, in the wilderness, he led them through a vast and trackless waste. The cloud went before to lead them. Moses tells Israel in another place that, that God went before to find a place for them to, to camp. And he gave you water out of the hard rock. It's actually the word for flint in Hebrew. It's a geological impossibility. It wasn't soft, porous sandstone. It was a hard flint rock. God spoke to the rock when Moses struck it, and uh, water uh, poured forth in in copious supply for the people. And he gave them manna to eat. It was all done, he said, so that you might know that when you get into the land, it'll go well with you. But even with all those uh, memories, Israel might still forget. They might forget God's goodness. And so Israel had to, had to learn how to cope with the good life, how to live in ease and affluence and not be corrupted by it. How did God do that? Well, Moses reminds them in the first five verses. He says, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. God had promised uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that uh, the land to which he, he brought them, the promised land, was theirs. They held the title d- a deed to it, and it would be passed down to their, uh, to their descendants. But Israel's enjoyment of that land was conditioned upon obedience. That's what uh, Old Testament theologians refer to as the Palestinian Covenant. Israel was given the title deed to the land, but their right to possess it. To live in it, to enjoy it, was conditioned upon their, their, their obedience. So Moses says, don't forget. Don't forget God. Because uh, a good memory is important for good behavior. If you remember God and what he's done and how he led you through the, uh, through the wilderness, then you're less inclined to, to disobey. Verse 3. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. There were two things that that, uh, 
God wanted to, uh, to do for Israel. All the experiences in the wilderness were designed to teach them two lessons. The first was to humble them. Because God knows that, that, uh, that all of us have uh, hearts that are inclined to be independent from God. We like to believe that, uh, that what we have is what we have produced, that we've, we've worked hard for it. And God knows that, that pride is, is destructive. He can never exalt us as long as we're confident uh, in ourselves. God resists the proud is the principle that we've seen over and over again. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So in order to exalt Israel, he had to humble them. And secondly, he had to test them to see what was in their heart. Now, don't think that he means by this test that God needs to know what was in their heart because God knew full well what was in their heart, just as he knows what, what's in our heart. God wasn't, uh, didn't need to be informed. They needed to know what was in their heart because, as we've seen over and over again, pride is such a subtle thing. It's so insidious. It's so hard to identify. Who would think that, that shyness and sensitivity uh, are simply manifestations of, of pride. Every once in a, in a while, Carolyn and I will have one of these uh, rather large uh, disagreements that couples get into. It seems to go with the uh, territory. And uh, being the uh, uh, analytical fellow that I am, I can usually determine what the problem is and uh, am quick to point out what she needs to do in order to set things right. And uh, she will say to me very uh, gently, well, you know, I, I think maybe you're being a little bit self-righteous. And I say, me? Self-righteous? Uh, no, no, I, I'm a very humble fellow. So, no, you know, I, I think there's a little stubbornness there, uh, a little bit of pride. No, it's not stubbornness. I'm just a, a tough-minded fellow. I make up my mind, and I, I try to stick with it. You no, know, I, I think that's a little pride there. I don't like to see that. God says that we have to realize the condition of our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I know the heart, God says. But do you know it? Do you know what's in your heart? So God had to take Israel through a set of very difficult circumstances in order to humble them, bring them to the end of themselves, make them desperate in their longing for God, and show them what was really in their heart. Now, how did he do it? Moses uh, tells him in verse 3, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known. He made you hungry, and then he fed you with manna. Now, you have to go back to the 16th chapter of Exodus to know what Moses is referring to. Israel had come out of the, uh, uh, out of the, the country of Egypt, and they were traveling south towards Sinai. They'd been on the road about six weeks, and they ran out of, out of food. They had taken just enough with them to provide for the first few weeks after the Exodus. But they didn't have enough to feed them all the way to Sinai. And they ran out of food after six weeks. And they began to complain, saying, we had it much better in, in Egypt. You know how, how quickly we all forget. They wanted to go back to Egypt where food was plentiful. 
The next morning, despite their complaints, God literally rained bread on them. It had never happened before. It was something, and Moses underscores this point, it was something that had never happened to their forefathers. No analogy for this either in history. Something absolutely unique. Bread fell out of the sky. They got up the next morning and they looked around and the ground was littered with this white uh, stuff, little flaky particles of, of food. And someone picked it up and put it in his mouth, and, and, it, and it tasted like coriander seed, like sesame seed, wafers dipped in honey. It was sweet. It was good to the taste. Someone looked at it and said uh, in Hebrew, man who? What is it in Hebrew? And the name stuck. They called it what's it for the rest of their experience and the rest of their time in the wilderness? Manna. The manna fell every day except on the Sabbath. They had to gather twice as much on Friday as they did any other day, and it kept over the Sabbath. So they didn't have to gather it on the Sabbath, but they had to gather it every other morning, just enough for the day. Each person gathered about a half gallon of of manna, an omer. They had to gather it early in the morning, but when the sun, because when the sun came up, the manna melted. So you had to had to gather the amount that you needed just for the day, and if you tried to hold it over to the next day. Uh, it would become foul. It wouldn't last. So they became totally dependent upon God for their supply. And God said, that's how I humbled you. It was like going on welfare. They had to line up every day for a handout. They were totally dependent upon God's largesse. They could not make manna. They couldn't manufacture it. They couldn't grow it. They couldn't save up their money and buy it. They couldn't even save manna so they'd have it the next day. They were totally dependent upon God. They had to queue up every morning to get their day's supply of manna. That was their staple diet for the next 40 years. They had other food, but that was the mainstay of their diet. When they they went into the land, according to Joshua 5, the moment their foot stepped into the promised land and they began to eat the produce of that land, the manna ceased. So it was a provision Only for the wilderness. It was a miracle. There's no explanation for it. Every day the manna fell. Moses says, what? You want to know the point of the manna? It was to humble you. It was like going on welfare. You see, these were people that lived in Goshen. Very fertile part of the Nile Delta. They were farmers and ranchers. They irrigated out of the Nile River. They produced their own crops. And all of a sudden, they couldn't grow anything because there was no water in the desert. It's a trackless, thirsty desert, as Moses puts it. And even if they could have irrigated, they were on the road all the time, so they couldn't stop to develop irrigation systems. They couldn't settle down and farm. They were totally dependent upon God. Now, Moses says, God was teaching you as a father teaches his son. Verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines, and it's the word really for educates or trains, as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. What did he teach them through the manna? Well, he tells us in verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hum- hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the key principle in the passage. That's the key verse in the passage. That's the point of the whole thing. God sent manna to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that issues from the mouth of God. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, but for myself, I do not think that the normal interpretation of this passage is is correct. The way this passage is normally understood uh, is that God is saying, man does not live on bread solely, but he ought to live on God's word. In other words, he ought not to be dependent merely upon material provisions, but on the spiritual provision that God gives. And that's certainly true. Or put another way, Man should not live on bread alone, but he ought to live on the Bible. He ought to base his life on the truth that's in the Word of God. But for myself, I don't think that's what Moses is saying. Because the principle then does not logically follow the lesson of the manna. The purpose of manna was to teach people to be utterly, totally dependent upon God. The manna was not given to teach people to depend upon the word of God per se, the scriptures, but to be totally dependent upon God. The other thing that makes me believe that uh, the traditional interpretation is not exactly uh, right is that the adjective here translated alone is the same adjective that occurs in Genesis 2. It is not good for man to be alone. That is, on his own. So I think what Moses is saying is that the manna came to teach you that you cannot make bread. God makes bread. God speaks and bread comes into being. The manna fell from heaven. You couldn't work for it. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't produce it. You couldn't grow it. You had to depend upon God. God spoke a creative word. Manna fell. Just as he spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. He had to create bread. I, I think that's what Jesus means in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. You say, why do I need to pray? Give, a, give, give me daily bread. I, you know, I, I went to school. I developed a skill. I, I have a, a degree. I, I work 10 to 12 hours a day. Uh, I make money, I give it to my wife, she goes down to the grocery store, and she buys the bread, and it shows up on the table. What do you mean, give us this day our daily bread? I put the bread on the table. And God says, no, you don't don't make bread. You don't make bread. God makes bread. God speaks, and your heart beats. God speaks, and your mind works. God speaks, and you, and you, you draw a breath. And apart from the word of God... You don't exist. As Paul puts it in another place, quoting one of, the, one of the Greek poets, in God we live and move and have our being. So that bread is on your table because of the will of God. Back of the bread is the snowy flower, back of the, of the flower of the mill, and back of the mill the standing grain and the rain and the Father's will. You see, that's what we've got to learn. That's what Isaiah means in Isaiah 55. Uh, again, this passage that very often is misunderstood. Will you turn there with me? Isaiah 55, 11. Very familiar passage about God's word not returning void, often applied to the, 
the notion that we preach the gospel and people respond. And that's, that's true, but that's not what Isaiah is talking about here. God is actually speaking through the prophet. He says in, in verse 9, uh, verse 8, My thoughts are not like your thoughts, neither are my ways my ways. He's contrasting the way he does things with the way we do things, and he's saying, you speak and you say things and nothing much happens. God speaks and things happen. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and the bread uh, for the eater. You see what happens? It rains and, and things grow. So, my word, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So God speaks and things happen. God speaks and things come into being that didn't exist before. God speaks and the manna falls from heaven. God speaks and bread turns up on your table because you're given the strength to go out and earn it. And apart from God, we can do nothing. See, we have to know where our next meal is coming from. We have to know the source from which it comes. Now, I'm, I'm convinced that's precisely the way Jesus uses this passage. As you know, when he was tempted on the Mount of Temptation, uh, he was hungry. He had, he had not eaten for 40 days. Satan said to him, turn the stones into bread. Jesus quoted this passage to himself, submitted to it, said, I will not. I will let God provide for my needs. Now, that's, what, that's the message. That's the lesson that we have to learn. Man does not live by bread that he makes himself, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, there are other illustrations here in verse 4. He reminds them that their clothes didn't wear out during the 40 years they were in the wilderness. They didn't have to worry about what to wear. They just wore what they wore the day before because it didn't get tattered. It didn't wear out. They wore the same clothes for 40 years. God spoke to their clothes, and they miraculously endured. Solves the real problem about what to wear every morning. They were on their feet for 40 years. God spoke to their feet, and their feet did not swell. That's the next statement. Your feet did not swell during these, these 40 years. You see, these are miracles. But we forget that there are miracles occurring all the time that we take for granted. G.K. Chesterton said that he wasn't much concerned about the miracles in the Gospels. That uh, what impressed him more was the miracle of his two legs. That every morning he, he gets up and he looks at these moving parts and they work. They take him from here to there. That's a miracle. It comes from God. You see, we take these things for granted. We tend to forget that we don't live by bread by ourselves but by God's creative word. We live and move and have our being in him. So humility is knowing where your bread comes from. It's knowing where your next meal is coming from and giving him thanks for it. He says in verse 10, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God. Attribute worth to him. It's a word for blessing. Bless him. Thank him. Realize that he's the source of that provision. 
Now, understanding this principle helps me with two problems. The first is the problem of, uh, of our own abilities and, and, uh, and assets. Uh, you know, people are really not created equal. They really aren't. They are created equal in the sight of God, but that's about the only equality that exists. As I look at you, some of you are prettier than others. Some of you uh, have an uncanny ability to make money. Uh, others of you have very attractive personalities. Some of you are very manually skillful. Some of you are better athletes than, than others. And it used to trouble me, you know, how do you handle that? You look at yourself and, and say, well, everybody's better than I am. That seems to be what Paul is saying in Philippians 2. We'll talk about that passage next week. But is that what it means? I, you know, if, if I went to a surgeon or to my barber and he kept telling me that everybody else is better at doing what they do than he, he does, I don't think I'd go back. There, there, there is a real sense in which we have to know what we can do. Paul says we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but we ought to think soberly, that is, objectively. We ought to be able to look at ourselves and say, I'm a better athlete than that person, or I'm, I'm more skillful, more adept with my hands, more dexterous. I'm, I'm more intelligent than others. Well, how do you handle that? It would be ludicrous for a very attractive woman to look into a mirror and then try to convince herself that she's the ugliest person on the face of the earth. How do you handle it? You just recognize the source, that's all. You didn't generate that beauty. You didn't develop that, that ability, that physical ability. It came from God. So when you realize what you have, thank God for it. Recognize the source. Humility is not self-denigration. It's not saying, I'm nothing, I can't do anything, everybody else is better than I. It's looking at yourself and saying, apart from God, I am nothing and I can do nothing, but I thank God for what he has provided. It's just a gift, that's all. I mentioned before in a column, uh, uh, when Carolyn and I lived in California, we befriended uh, Jim and Nancy Schaffner. If you watch Dallas play very often... Uh, you've probably seen uh, Jim Schaffner running back and forth on the sidelines with the headphones on. He's the quarterback uh, coach for the Dallas Cowboys. And at the time, he was an assistant coach for the 49ers. And uh, through my friendship with him, I had a, a couple of opportunities to speak to the 49ers to go up to chapel services in San Francisco. And the first day I went up, I met Dick Nolan, who then was the coach of the 49ers, head coach. And he said to me, uh, David, I don't care what you say to them, but please do not tell my athletes that they can't do anything. And I can understand. No coach wants your uh, football players to not believe in themselves. They have to believe in themselves. They have to believe that they're better. I understood and assured him that I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. Apparently someone had done that in a chapel service and said something about their inability and uh, not recognizing that humility is not saying I can't do anything, but it's saying, I can't. God has given me this ability, therefore I can. Many of you probably saw the uh, Barbara Walters special this past week in which she interviewed uh, Sybil Shepherd, a remarkably beautiful woman. And uh, 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 Mrs. Walters, uh, Ms. Walters said to her, you know, how do you handle your beauty. Obviously, it's open doors for you. How do you handle it? She said, it's a gift. It's a gift. 
And a bit later, Angela Lansbury was asked uh, pretty much the same question about her acting ability. And she responded with the comment that it's a God-given talent. Now, I know nothing about those women. I don't know if they're believers or not. But that's the balance that we need to maintain. Humility is not believing in yourself. Humility is simply knowing the source of your assets and your abilities and thanking God for them and using them for his sake. That puts things in balance, you see. In him we live and move and have our being. Man does not live by bread that he makes for himself, but by every word that issues from the mouth of God. Uh, the, the other problem that I have that this passage helps me with is this whole matter of handling humiliations. Uh, every once in a while, God will fling us into a, a barren, waterless waste. Perhaps you lose your job. Or you do something very foolish and humiliate yourself in front of the entire world. And it seems very cruel of God to permit these things to happen. But sometimes he has to be cruel in order to be kind. Because he knows that pride is ruinous. He knew what would happen to Israel if they were permitted, if they permitted the good life to go to their head in his, his parting uh, word to Israel in verse 19, at least in this chapter, is that if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you'll surely be ruined. You'll come to ruin. Like the nations the Lord brought to ruin before you, so you'll be brought to ruin for not obeying uh, the Lord your God. Pride is ruinous. Scripture tells us that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. We get real impressed with ourselves. We believe that, that the good things of our life are, are there because we have done them. And invariably, that the next step is, is down. It's destructive. We do something terribly foolish and wipe out our family, bankrupt our businesses, break up our marriages, ruin relationships with others. God doesn't want that to happen, and so he will sometimes take us through these hard difficult circumstances in order to teach us where our bread comes from. Uh, That's what God had to teach Israel. Pride separates us from one another. It's it's an ugly trait. Uh, We hate it when we see it in others. And others hate it when they see it in us. You see? Uh, Churchill commented once on a, a, an arrogant colleague of, of his. There but for the grace of God, he says, goes God. Uh, we, we don't like to see people who think they're God, who are godlike, or who act godlike. And, and neither does God. See, it, that, that arrogance, that pride separates us from one another. And because God loves us, he may take us through these hard times to deliver us from our pride. But perhaps more importantly, pride separates us from God. It it prevents us, it inhibits us from laying hold of everything that, that God has for us. Because if we think we are adequate, then we do not make room in our life for the resources of, of God. It 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 prevents us, it inhibits us from laying hold of everything that that God has for us. Because if we think we are adequate, then we do not make room in our life for the resources of of God. So he will, on occasion, take us to the end of ourselves. 
so that we realize our inadequacy in order to lay hold of his sufficiency. And when we do that, we come to see God in a new way, in a way that we have never seen him before. That's what happened to Job. Job was a good man. God said so. You can't question God's, uh, uh, God's uh, analysis of Job's character. He was a good man. But as you read through the story of Job, you can see uh, a bit of self-righteousness, a bit of self-confidence. He is inclined to justify himself. And uh, that was the sort of thing that God sees in us, and he hates, and he wants to, he wants to deal with it. And so he take Job, took Job. Through those terrible circumstances, he was utterly humiliated at the end. But when it was all over, he said, I, I've heard about you. I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear. He says, but now I see you. He saw God in a way that he had never seen him before. And so don't think when you go through these hard times uh, that God is cruel. His concern is ultimately that it might go well with us. That was the promise that he made to Israel. It's also that in the end it will go well with you. His intent ultimately is to be kind. So see these humiliations for what they are. They're, they're educative. They're, they're uh, designed to teach us to be more reliant, uh, to be uh, more trustful, to be less self-reliant and adequate uh, in ourselves. So take away this principle, will you? If you don't remember anything else, remember this one principle. Man does not live by the bread that he makes for himself, but he lives from every word that issues from the mouth of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this, um, this message from Moses and for uh, this this new way of, of looking at ourselves, uh, this new revelation of the means by which God sets out to set us free from our, from our pride. We know that, that your mercy at times may be severe, and uh, we resist it, Lord, in our hearts, but yet we know that your ultimate concern is to free us from the from the pride that hampers us and hinders us and keeps us from laying hold of everything that you have for us and keeps us from the exaltation that, uh, that, you've, that you envision for us. So help us to, to learn that everything comes from you and help us to thank you for all that we have, knowing that you're the source of every provision that's made for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.